Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you to the September 20, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we'll hear from David Cribbs in advance of the Alzheimer's Conference on September 30th. He'll talk about his research. We'll learn more about brain plaques lesions, his own research, and some news about a promising new drug. And then we'll hear from UCI's International Relations Lecture, Paula Garb, and UCI alum, Christina Ong, with uh, why foreign affairs matter to us all. Definitely a bedrock of literate voting. They'll cover it all today, including this, uh, the esteemed institutions that are here um, with respect to peace building at UCI. We'll be right back after a short station break with David Cripps. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is my guest, UCI neuroscientist David Cribbs, to talk about his latest findings in Alzheimer's research, a new drug that's been getting a great deal of attention, and about this year's Alzheimer's Disease Conference in Irvine, September 30th, hosted by the UCI Institute for Memory Impairments, we might call it MIND later, and Neurological Disorders and Alzheimer's Association, Orange County Chapter. The long-term goal of his research is to identify the critical age-related factors responsible for the initiation and progression of Alzheimer's disease, especially dealing with immunotherapeutic approaches toward treating Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Cribbs has published easily 100. It's like over 100, yes. Over 100 at this point. And he served on multiple National Institutes of Health and Center for Scientific Review Studies section panels. 2008, he received the Vandernoort Award for Outstanding Research in UCI Department of Neurology. Currently, Dr. Cribbs serves as the co-leader of the Neuropathology Corps in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at UCI mind and under his leadership neuropathology core maintains the alzheimer's disease research center's human brain tissue repository he's been appointed to the department of veterans affairs joint biomedical laboratory research and development and clinical science research and development services scientific merit review board professor cribs earned his bachelor's of science from saint mary's college of maryland and his phd at west virginia university in biochemistry previous to his appointment at UCI, he completed research at Johns Hopkins University. Well, welcome back to Ask a Leader, Professor David Cribbs. Thank you, Claudia. So let's begin with in Alzheimer's research, your colleagues and you have been investigating two factors driving neurodegeneration. That's where the the brain tissue is atrophying. I think that's kind of the, the immediate impression. The, the two factors are amyloid beta and tau protein. Could you explain what these factors are, how they register in the diagnostics done both in research as well as in the clinical settings? Sure, Claudia. So the, uh, the two uh, pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease are plaques and tangles, as you mentioned. And the, the plaques are primarily made up of a, a small peptide uh, called beta amyloid. 
the tangles are made up of a, a hyperphosphorylated form of another protein called tau. And, and to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, you need both of these pathological lesions. The, the, the thing that, that brings both of these proteins in together is that they both misfold and accumulate. One, the beta amyloid peptide accumulates outside of cells, so these are extracellular plaques or senile plaques. In the case of tau, the protein misfolds and accumulates inside of neurons in the brain. As I mentioned, you need to have both of these for a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And in the past, that could only be confirmed after death at a postmortem neuropath analysis. Uh, now, the field has made recent discoveries looking at biomarkers, both cerebral spinal fluid biomarkers. So these are things that accumulate in the cerebral spinal fluid uh, that we can test and they're uh, shed that the passes these, through the brain barrier and it's shed into the spinal column. That's correct. And so, interestingly, the beta amyloid peptide that's found in the senile plaques in the brain, the level goes down in cerebral spinal fluid. Okay. And the tau protein that's hyperphosphorylated and, and misfolded uh, goes up in, in in the cerebral spinal fluid. So those are key biomarkers that we look for. So, uh, future clinical trials like the one we're going to talk about in a little while. Uh, yes. Those are based on people having uh, this signature biomarker. So they, they're not showing uh, typically cognitive decline or memory impairment, uh, but that these biomarkers give us an indication that they're likely to develop the disease in the near future. The other thing in, uh, is that uh, ligands, I, I don't know whether I should use the word ligands, but chemicals that can cross the blood-brain barrier and bind to both plaques and tangles have now been, been worked out. And so this allows us to do PET imaging. And so people can be found to be amyloid, plaque positive, or they can be found to have tangles positive. And in the, the, the clinical trial that we're going to talk about in a little while, it was the, this PET imaging of amyloid. Everyone that was, was part of that clinical trial was tested positive for plaques. So many of them didn't, didn't have cognitive impairment or they had very mild uh, memory issues. But just to get into the clinical trial, uh, they had to be PET positive for the amyloid, uh, uh, amyloid plaques in the brain. So I, I didn't anticipate bringing any of the ethical aspects of this, but Josh Grill has been on before and talking about sort of the disclosure of the the lab results for them. But I think in this case, you are you have to disclose yeah, in terms so, of screening. So the people, as I understand it, I'm uh, Josh and uh, Amy Pierce at the UCI ADRC, uh, and people consent people to come into these clinical trials. In, in the past, you typically knew you, you had some kind of memory because we were doing clinical trials in, in very late stages yes. in the disease, uh, which yeah, I think was doomed to failure. I think we have much better chance of a successful outcome now. With the early? Yes, with the early intervention where you haven't had atrophy of the brain, say 30% shrinkage of the brain. Uh, so it, it's it's a much better platform for testing drugs when people aren't severely demented in late late stages of the disease. So now, with the specimens that can be taken from the spinal fluid, then it's it's not that invasive. It's not that fraught. It's, it, it's it's something. It's more invasive than say taking blood, obviously. But yes. the the people in our clinic and the people in the other Alzheimer's disease research centers around the United States. Are, are trained to educate the individuals, and they're using a very small needle. So the, the incidence of headache is, is significantly reduced. Uh, we've collected from, we have about 300 patients, or I shouldn't say we have 300 subjects that we follow in our, our ADRC longitudinal cohort. 
So that, that sounds sizable. One. Yeah, yes. And we, the majority of those people not only agree to give blood and donate their brains at the end of their life, but many of them have agreed. Uh, we, we give them a small monetary, I think it's $100, and we try and get them to come in every three years to give. So we have longitudinal samples of CSF. And those are frozen, and, and we provide those for researchers at UCI as well as researchers around the country, around the world, for that matter. So your work with these particular, your studies, have they been then helping you refine your thinking then about how these the amyloid beta and the tau proteins are driving sure. this so degeneration? Sure. So not only are these biomarkers important in terms of being able to pick people that are going to be in the clinical trial, but we hope that these biomarkers, so as a drug, whether it's an antibody like the one we're going to talk about later, or whether it's a small molecule drug, whatever it is, the intervention, we'd like these biomarkers to change in response. That gives you an idea that your drug is actually hitting the target that, that you're, you're aiming at. So in, it would either be plaques or tangles uh, at this stage in terms of Alzheimer's clinical trials. So, so we like to see the A-beta go up in the CSF, the tau go down, and just like the, 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 the clinical trial we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes, okay. uh, we'd like to see the PET imaging signal change from being a very robust uh, colored uh, image to a very uh, drab color, indicating that the amyloid, uh, level of amyloid in the brain has gone down significantly. Okay. So what are you learning about the accumulation of, of amyloid? beta in the brain promoting the strokes that you described as hypertension-induced intercerebral hemorrhage. That's, right. a, that's a huge problem. Yeah, so um, actually the conference we're going to get into once again later on is about other forms of, of dementia, and, and there are risk factors that can increase your, the incidence of dementia in a population, and, and one of the things that's been shown is people with midlife hypertension end up being an increased risk of developing that's dementia. That's midlife, though, because Dr. Kawas found yes. out that they need hypertension that, at 90. Yes. So, so that seems to be protective, target. yes. But yeah. it's, it's wow. pretty clear that uh, and this was a large study done in Hawaii, in Hawaii where they found that midlife hypertension increased your risk of developing dementia. And then when they looked at the brains of these individuals when they passed away, what they found was those people that had midlife hypertension had significantly more plaques and tangles in the brain. So and, and my research in this area uh, is looking at cerebrovascular blood changes in the blood vessels, uh, dysfunction and damage to the blood vessels in the brain. So the blood supply is critical for providing oxygen yes. and removing waste products and providing nutrients to the brain. And, and so hypertension not only can cause an increase in, in heart attacks, but also strokes in the brain and hemorrhagic strokes. So th there's different types of strokes. The type of strokes that I'm interested in are those where there's actual bleeding in the brain, not blockage of a blood vessel. And so my research is primarily involved in animal models, and we have animal models. Mouse models. Mouse models. And, and these mice uh, have, been, have, have been generated to produce amyloid plaques in the mouse brain and also the tangles in the mouse brain. Uh, and so we use those mouse models and then put the, the mice on a, a hypertension protocol or a hypertension uh, intervention. Uh -huh. And so we give them a, a drug... Uh, um, a drug called angiotensin II. It's not really a drug, but it's it's in a natural product that's found in the body, and if it goes up, it can in induce uh, hypertension. 
Um, and, and so what we looked at was how the, the hypertension in the mouse model of Alzheimer's disease affected the Alzheimer's pathology and also affected the blood vessel pathology. And what you were talking about is we saw with one month of hypertension in the mouse model, these transgenic, I'll call them an Alzheimer's uh, mouse model, uh, that there was an increase in the, the accumulation of the, this plaque peptide in the vessels. And, and there was also an increase in these micro hemorrhages, micro bleeds in the brain. We haven't talked about it. So we, in Alzheimer's disease, you have senile plaques that are, right. are they're made up of amyloid. But the, this peptide also accumulates in vessels in the brain. This is called cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And this uh, causes uh, damage to the blood vessels in the brain. It damages smooth muscle cells that are in, involved in controlling the, the diameter and dilation of blood vessels, the arteries and, and arterioles. circulation there. Yes. yes. So it's, it's regulate, helped to regulate blood flow. And these cells be, become damaged by the accumulation of this, of this same amyloid peptide in the vessels. And it weakens the vessels and increases the chance of developing a hemorrhagic stroke. So there's a, uh, I just got back from Boston where there was the fifth an, uh, semi-annual conference on cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And there's a mutation in the, the beta amyloid peptide. It doesn't cause Alzheimer's disease. So this is the same peptide that accumulates in these plaques uh, in Alzheimer's disease. In these Dutch patients, the mutations inside this little peptide uh, and these people don't get Alzheimer's disease. They get multiple hemorrhages in their, their mid-50s to early 60s and typically die of the hemorrhages. Uh, so this, this peptide is certainly pathological when it, when it accumulates in e either in the plaques or in the vessels in the brain. So, well, That's amazing. Yes. And so, and you've been. How long have you been working on this? So I, we can, you're at the mice model level now, right? So, so but I mean, they just reported on the first clinical trial in patients with this cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and they used immunotherapy, which hopefully we'll have time to talk about later. Oh, we which is get my with there, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. But uh, in this clinical trial, they were trying to remove the amyloid, not the plaques that, that cause Alzheimer's disease, but they were trying to specifically remove the amyloid that accumulates in the vessels. And there was real concern that if you remove the amyloid in the vessels, would the, the vessels, uh, would it cause further damage or would it be a benefit? And the jury's still out on That's that. That's still out. Wow, yeah. this is leading edge. I so appreciate that. Well, anybody who's just tuned in, this is Ask a Leader. My guest is David Cribs, professor of neurology at UCI's medical school, talking about his latest Alzheimer's research, and we're we're heading in l many directions uh, today. So you've also investigated immunogenic vaccines yes. that also help to address the. How do they work? Okay, so the, uh, the probably the easiest way is if you were uh, the example I'll use is if you got bit by a snake. Uh, and you've heard of anti-venom. Oh, I don't. Um, so the, the idea is that, that and so anti-venoms are, are typically antibodies that bind to toxins. And, and so it doesn't have to be a, a snake toxin. It could be a, another toxin. And so uh, what, what is done in those cases is the antivenom is given that has these antibodies that binds to the toxin and neutralizes the toxin. So the toxin can't bind to whatever its target is in the body. And so the idea with immunotherapy for Alzheimer's disease is uh, we, we take the beta amyloid peptide that accumulates in the brain. So we make it. Charlie Glabe at UCI makes it yes. for us. He's part of the ADRC. And, and then we make a vaccine out of that amyloid and we immunize animals. And the animals then make antibodies against that A-beta peptide. And so when we immunize these 
uh, Alzheimer's disease, transgenic mice that get the plaques in the brains, and we make antibodies against this A-beta peptide. The antibodies can cross the blood-brain barrier. They can. Yes, in significant enough Shit. levels to clear the plaques or block the plaque formation. And so that's the basis of, of the number of clinical trials that have gone over that have gone on now for over 10 years. So, okay, it's getting yeah, pretty so refined. That, that what I was talking about is an example of active immunization. Um, the, what drug companies in my laboratory in collaboration with Dr. Michael Agajanian at the Institute for uh, Molecular Medicine in Huntington Beach is we've been developing mouse antibodies and then we humanize these antibodies. We, we, t we keep the part that binds to the amyloid and we change the rest of the mouse molecule to be a human molecule. Cause so then you could go into a humans and give them a dose of this antibody every month or every month. three, okay. uh, typically a month to three months, uh, you know, depending on how long the antibody stays in the blood and gets into the brain. And so the, the antibody, enough antibody gets in the brain uh, and targets these pathological accumulations. And the, the mechanisms are, are a little bit more complicated. The, this activates cells in the brain called microglia. They're, they're like monocytes or macrophages. Uh, and uh, people would be familiar with these in, in, the, in the periphery where they come into tissue and remove pathogens and stuff like that. So they can eat up the plaques. Uh, and the other thing is the, you, you can, the antibodies combine small aggregates of this amyloid peptide in, in, the, in the tissue surrounding the cells. Uh, and through what's called perivascular drainage or transport across the blood-brain barrier, you, you facilitate clearance, reduction in the level of this pathological peptide in the brain. And we're, we're also working on an anti-tau vaccine as well as other people. And so this targets that, that intracellular, the second uh, pathological hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, those tangles. So it's made, made up of hyperphosphorylated tau. So we have vaccines working on that as well as uh, vaccines working on alpha-synuclein that occurs in Lewy body disease. So would the vaccine type treatment in your mind, it's really a global question, but I think I'm anticipating what other people would like to be curious about too. Does this offer a more benign treatment than some of those uh, dealing with the the uh, transmission, uh, um, the the interception? And the, um, I'm trying to think of what a neurotransmission, yeah, synaptic. So, yes, yeah. So the. What we're trying to do and what everybody's trying to do by studying mouse models and, and cell culture models and, and humans with, with the disease is to try to figure out what are the critical uh, mistakes or deficits that occur in the aging brain that lead to the accumulation of this. There are people with what are called dominant mutations in, with the amyloid precursor protein or presenilin 1 or presenilin 2. And in some cases, these people develop... Uh, severe dementia in their mid to late 20s or early 30s. So in these p particular cases where there's a dominant mutation, these people overproduce the beta amyloid protein. Right away. Yeah, so they're, they're producing can. more of it. And there's, there's mutations in the tau protein that can cause dementia as well. And so there there seems to be uh, a mutant form of the protein is made. In, in sporadic forms of the disease where there's not a dominant genetic mutation, it doesn't appear to be an overproduction of the pep, uh, of the, the, the amyloid uh, peptide or that tau the protein that forms the tangles. It seems to be a, a deficit in the ability to clear these these um, 
misfolded proteins. And, and you could think of it as, as the plumbing in your house after right, 30 right. or 40 years as, as the diameter of the pipe decreases and the, the ability of stuff to flow down the sink. And that's what we think. And so people are exploring uh, uh, mechanisms or pathways that might enhance uh, clearance there and as well as things that that'll that slow down the production of these peptides which are also uh, with this benign a kind of impact on all the others because we'll, we'll talk let's go into the um, aducanumab I'm uh, not sure how to pronounce I'm not sure it's, I know how to pronounce it either <laughs> so I wouldn't worry about it okay and so in the, the first week of this month the press has been touting some promising results and apparently we're also there's a clinical trial for this particular drug here at UCI so what stage of Alzheimer's were the are the participants being enrolled in this so, study so this was is one of the, an example of one of the new clinical trials in that that uh, these people had very, very mild uh, symptoms. But they have Me symptoms. They're Some of them, yeah. And actually, Josh Grill or Amy Pierce would be better to. I mean, uh, I've read the paper, but I've read it as more as a basic research science trial. Well, that's, that's fine. Yeah, that's so. But yeah, they were they're if very mild. The other thing was, you know, they could have memory complaints, but they wouldn't be uh, uh, Alzheimer's or, or uh, uh, late stages of mild cognitive impairment. These different uh, dis different stages mm -hmm. of the of disease progression. But th the critical thing here was that we go back to the beginning of this interview. We were talking about the ability of uh, biomarkers to predict the. Uh, who might develop the the disease in in the near future, and in, in this particular clinical trial, as as many of the clinical trials going forward from now on are going to be dependent to get into the clinical trial, you're going to have to have evidence that that you have disease uh, processes going on in the brain. And in this particular case, they did that PET imaging. So there's a uh, there's a molecule that that has a signal that can be seen by PET imaging. It's a uh, uh, and so the, the individuals come in, and if they pass all the other conditions to get into the clinical trial health-wise and things, uh, they're giving a, an injection of, of this molecule, and this molecule diffuses across the blood-brain barrier, binds to the amyloid plaques in the brain, and gives, and gives a, a characteristic signal okay. of where the amyloid is in the brain how, and, and roughly how much is there. So everyone that was in the clinical trial already had a brain full of amyloid, okay. although they weren't they weren't far along in terms of the right, clinical right. stage of That's, the, which, of the which disease. Which is the case. Yeah. And so then one endpoint for this, this uh, and they used different doses of this. This was a monoclonal antibody. It's a little different than the way I was describing it earlier where mm -hmm. you take a, an antibody made in a mouse. This, this company, the companies involved in this study, they actually uh, identified this antibody from human cells. So it ha it's not a mouse uh, antibody that's been humanized. This is an actual human antibody that, that was uh, uh, cloned out of uh, B cells from a human. Okay. Okay. And, and so it's a little bit different, but it, it's, it's, the idea is it's still going to do the same thing. And it, its target was not the soluble form of the amyloid peptide, but uh, the, the aggregates. There's things called oligomers that are very research, uh, very uh, important in the research area. And then the fibrils that actually deposit, the, make those plaques in the brain or plaques in or the accumulations in the blood vessels. Okay, so so it 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 does it's it's selective for uh, this beta amyloid peptide that's aggregated. So when it aggregates, it forms confirmations that this antibody can recognize. So it's it's in. The idea is that it's targeting more the pathological form right, of the peptide right. rather than Not the, the traces. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So how can people find out more about having 
a family member or themselves enrolled in the study. So they, they would this. have to contact the UCI ADRC, okay. uh, and you can go on the website and see that. Uh, it, it's easy to, to find. Uh, and then they would need to call the clinic, and uh, they would have to set up an appointment, uh, and then they, they would have to uh, go through all of the things and, uh, and, and the consenting, and they would also have to be found, you know, fit enough not to have things that would exclude them from the, the trial. And then right. they, would, they would have to agree to have a, a PET imaging session where they would be in an MRI machine uh, where, where the ligand would be given, the molecule, I'm not going to call it ligand, they, the molecule, the signaling molecule yes. that goes into the brain and buys the plaque. So if they pass all the other things and, and, they, uh, and they have amyloid in the brain, and they, they could uh, potentially take part in the clinical trial. So they're, that's, they do find that. That disclosure occurs. You're not going to have a control group that doesn't have it, and, and the then c- that the group? C- the controls in these are people that, uh, uh, what we would call uh, placebo. So because everyone, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, yep. everyone that gets into this study, uh, they, is, know. they know that they're, um, they're amyloid positive. Okay. It, 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 they have a higher uh, probability of development disease. It's not. It's not 100. percent It's not 100. percent That's what I was creeping, looking for. Yeah. Creeping. But it. But it. It's. We're getting better and better. I say we as everyone yes. in the field uh, at at predicting those that are likely to develop the disease in the next two, three, four years. Uh, so 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 the individuals would then be could take part in in the clinical trial and if, if they're interested and and they agree to everything. So also the interest is in there's the 27th annual Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference. It will be hosted in Irvine on September 30th. I believe that was the last Friday of the month. Right. It will be at 18000 on Von Carmen in Irvine. I'm not plugging the hotel. I'm just telling you guys where to go. <laughs> and it's an all-day conference. You can start rubbing shoulders with leading edge clinicians at 7:30 in the morning start having danish and coffee with them and you can go all the way till five o'clock this is meant for clinicians it's meant for people getting more continuing medical education units it's it's for uh, all kinds of of uh, caregivers it's for prospective patients it's for the broad public it's a just an amazing kind of forum. So what would you like to mention our highlights? What do you expect to get out of this, David Cripps? So this is, I believe it's the 27th annual conference yes. that we've had, we're going to have on uh, September 30th. And in this particular we, uh, conference is focused on dementia research across unique populations. And, and so uh, so if you go to the, the Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference on, on the website, you'll be able to see the uh, see the individuals that are actually going to be, uh, and these are clinicians and research scientists from around the country. Uh, what's unique this time is, and many people in the community have heard of frontal temporal dementia, yes. or Lewy body dementia. We are, there's also a dementia and head trauma session, dementia and Down syndrome. So it, it, it'll provide a spectrum of, of those things, not directly Alzheimer's disease. Many of these, like in, in, 
head trauma and dementia and Down syndrome, they, they develop plaques and tangles like Alzheimer's disease, but the, the cause or the initiating factors are, are, are seem to be different in, right. in those situations. Right. So head trauma can, can cause damage to both to the blood vessels and to the, the, the actual brain itself and probably uh, blocks uh, drainage clearance of these peptides, which then accelerates the accumulation of them in the brain. So. And everybody from previous experience, everybody does a, an excellent job of making this leading-edge research extremely accessible and a sort of ups everybody's game in terms of a better understanding. So sure, it's, it's, it's a valuable great forum. To, yeah, it's valuable to us as researchers because uh, okay. we, we know some of the people that are giving the talks, but it gives us a chance to, to interact with them. But it, there's also vendors there uh, from uh, that Every possible caregiving. Aspect, yes, yeah. and so, and so it, especially even if you're young, your, your grandparents or your parents, this may be an issue. So it's, it's certainly, and it's, it's a, the, the speakers do a good job of making it accessible to, to people without a, a neuroscience background, let's say. And so it's, it, it, the, uh, the level is such that, that people could come without a background in science or neuroscience and, and still get something out of the conference. There's also sort of a self-care aspect. Some, you know, what what is the best possible way for for all adults in the room to manage their their daily lives better to do that? And what I love about this David Cribbs is that this is such an intellectually honest crowd, and they're they'll call it and they say pharma hasn't come through yet. We haven't seen anything significant. It's still a good idea to be physically active and all this while. Some right. of these new clinical trials are in right. uh, in the pipeline, as it were. So, so do we have a second left? We have one second uh, left. Okay, so that we didn't get a, as didn't have as much time to talk about that clinical trial. But in that clinical trial, the uh, it's important to mention that after one year on several different doses of that uh, yes. human antibody, yes. there there was significant clearing of, of the amyloid from the brain, and there was uh, even a hint, although this is a phase one study, that there might be some benefit. Cognitive benefit in those that re that receive wow. the, uh, as opposed to those that just so those the people that are the placebo they don't know whether they're getting the drug no, or not they're the getting idea. just a saline injection they're not getting the, this human antibody so okay. I just wanted to finish off on oh that. yes and that's important and and it's not it's not totally benign there are. Some there's some headaches and some other yeah, complications, there, I, I, and it's I didn't go into that, but yeah, the, at the highest dose there was some what's called aria, and that's seen in in other examples uh, where we've had immunotherapy, and it seems to be the aria E is uh, cause is vasogenic edema, it's an increase in water in, in to certain areas in the brain, and this almost certainly is caused by the uh, antibody binding the amyloid in the vessels, and and. I think it's something that we're going to be able to get around. Okay, uh, okay that's yet. promising. Yes. Even more so. Okay. Well, I do look forward to what's in store at the conference this year. I thank you, David Cribbs, for coming all the way down in studio with me today <laughs> to cover this racing through it. I know it was it's it's hard on your thorough research sensibilities to fly through the material like this, but I really appreciate you humoring our lay ears with uh, give, breaking it down so beautifully and accessibly today. Thanks for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll be right back with Paula Garb and Christina Ong and bringing up what uh, why international affairs is our local business. Be back after a short station break.
Adagio for strings, Charlie Hayden Ensemble. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest for this portion of the hour is UCI lecturer and anthropologist Paula Garb. And uh, Christina, as I mentioned, announced earlier, was not able to come. I didn't know that until now. Paula Garb has been a lecturer at the University of California, Irvine, for the past 25 years, teaching courses in conflict resolution and civic and community engagement in the School of Social Sciences and Division of Undergraduate Education. She directs the Minor in Conflict Resolution, the Mediation Certificate Program, and Gang Intervention Certificate Program. Paula Garb is also the co-founder and director of UCI's Center for Citizen Peacebuilding, co-founder and co-director of Education for Global Peace, and co-founder of UCI's Olive Tree Initiative, all of which we'll cover in this program. Most recently, she co-founded as faculty advisor of UCI's Students for Global Peacebuilding, which Christina could have brought up, but we'll, uh, we'll bring her on another time because this topic isn't going away. Okay, Paula has two decades of experience facilitating dialogues and joint projects between communities divided by wars in the South Caucasus. This long and difficult work of helping communities rebuild even minimal trust after bloody conflicts has taught her how crucial it is to prevent such wars. And I don't think we in the Western world appreciate how deep-rooted some of those conflicts are and, are and how dangerous it is for somebody to mediate between them. John Paul Lederach was here. He was the first one to, uh, I think, educate a lot of us. It was in October of 2001. He educated us a great deal about that. I never forgot what he took. But so Paula Garby is going to fill in from uh, fill in from after there. She's dedicated for the duration to promoting peace education everywhere for a safer and healthier world. After starting. Her education at Cal State San Francisco, she continued her studies in history and anthropology at Moscow State University and completed her Ph.D. at Russian Academy of Sciences Institute of Anthropology. She joins me in studio here today. Welcome, Dr. Paula Garb, to Ask a Leader. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Well, first, I'd like for you, Paula Garb, to take a step back from your immediate undertakings and reflect on the state of foreign affairs and how they have every connection with civil and local life. Why it's, why is it important that we consider and understand these developments? Number one, we're all connected. The, the world is so small now, and things that happen in one part of the world reverberate in another part of the world. Whatever is said here reverberates there and so it clamors I you can say reverberate I think yes. it's even clamoring at this point yes so yeah we're all connected and uh, what happens uh, across the globe it affects us and what we do here affects others I heard a, a really an interesting piece uh, this morning on uh, the Pacifica network on democracy now there was a a faculty member from Stockton University and she was saying why it's important she says that we're uh, we have a binary thinking. It's either there is either a free world or not free world, and that that binary thinking is sort of trapping us in our ability to think more critically, more geopolitically, more globally. And I think with 65 million refugees, it behooves us to have a, a better understanding of what's going on. They're they're coming, and uh, as Noam Chomsky's pointed out, is those aren't the climate change refugees. So we have. 
a lot of refugees coming, and the better we understand that, the the better for stability everywhere. Yes, I think the uh, the binary thinking has gotten us into, and lots of people into lots of trouble, especially in the Western world, where we tend to think that way. Things are either good or bad. They're either up or down. They're, um, and in addition to that, we forget that the history of the world is all about movement of people. And we get the sense in our own lifetime that everything should stay the way it is. But it's never been that way. People are always moving for whatever reasons. And we act as though this is some catastrophic new idea of movement. Obviously, refugees running from war is also something that unfortunately has been with us forever. And, but it doesn't mean that it has to be forever in front of us. We need and can learn from the lessons of the past. Well, why don't you, since you have such a great portfolio with the Caucasus and with the Soviet Union then and Russia now, tell us uh, what your impressions are of what the two leading presidential candidates, I'm, not, I'm only going to bring up the lean because I don't think Green Party candidate is bringing up anything about international relations and we know that the libertarian party nominee doesn't know where what Aleppo is let alone where it is so I'm going to just focus in on what the two main party presidential candidates what their how they relate to Putin is posing various uh, backlash for for us for now and for for their administrations in the future again I think uh, you know democracy now um, analysts uh, analysis fits this too. Uh, Putin is either good or he's bad. He's either the Russia is either doing well or it's doing poorly. And when I said how you know words uttered here impact other places, uh, I am concerned that our U.S.-Russia relations can be damaged by this dialogue of is Putin good or is he bad. Um, that the candidates are engaging in and taking extreme positions um, that are, I think, going to be unhelpful later when the real matter of diplomacy uh, needs to, and in fact is going on as we speak, because as we speak, um, the U.S.-Russia relations and diplomacy is being played out around the horrific developments in Syria. So I, I cringe every time I hear... Um, statements that are shaming Russia and shaming Putin so um, in such extreme ways that that can't possibly help the back channel discussions that need to take place to solve today's problems where people are dying literally by the minute. Paula Garb, are there back channel? Do you think discussions? Well, when I mean Russian back channel, I no, mean, I mean, you know, you, carry you that. I well. F- Certainly at the citizen peace building, at the citizen level, they've always been going on. Okay. But um, in, di- in diplomatic relations, that's what I mean by back channel, is that, you know, confidential conversations are taking place between Lavrov and Kerry uh, yes. about what to do in Syria. And I don't think it helps them, either one of them, in these discussions to have this noise from the election, um, you know, be so extreme and unhelpful to what they're trying to accomplish. Sort of walking him further and further into a corner that makes for a, a, I mean, the lack of nuance backs your, right. I don't want to say adversary, but your, 
I guess, your counterpart. That um, and so that and there's the nuance. We need to call him the counterpart, not the adversary, and give give him some ways to wiggle out. And I I, I guess it would have been a lovely thing to talk about the the Russian elections, which were a, a complete. A, a whole different sort of an outcome than has previously, I mean, historically different kind of outcome, but we didn't have, make time for that. We have so much to cover here. So let's, let's talk about how the several organizations here at UCI give faculty, administrators, students, and community members a, a better way to become informed and involved which is, uh, I think, a bomb for a lot of us who feel like we, we have, are helpless in dealing with this inordinately large, complicated, uh, in, uh, I I, I, it's so large, I don't know how to just wrap it into a small expression, but the inordinately dangerous and intractable and involved international situation. Absolutely, knowledge of international relations and affairs in other parts of the world as well as within our own large country with very different kinds of communities uh, where boundaries aren't crossed very often. So more knowledge and more interaction are definitely needed. The, the three main organizations that I am currently intimately involved with is, are, first of all, the Center for Citizen Peacebuilding, uh, which conducts research and uh, promotes education and support citizen peace building uh, <coughs> here in our campus as well as in local communities. And uh, part of that organization is the Students for Global Peace Building. It's affiliated with the Center for Citizen Peace Building. Students for Global Peace Building is also affiliated with International Studies Program. And so those are the three organizations currently that I am involved with mostly, and uh, a large part of our work is education, both uh, campus community by bringing people from these other parts of the world, and by um, conducting workshops and trainings in interpersonal conflict resolution, intergroup conflict resolution, as well as international. Uh, Students for Global Peace Building is uh, student-led and uh, Many people may know that I was one of the co-founders of the Olive Tree Initiative, which um, you know we we established because of how the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was playing out on our campus, um, and you know reached a certain level of violence that was you know unacceptable, and so we started to take students who represented uh, the communities that support one or the other side, and actually came up with the idea of taking them there. And that continues on. It's a very successful program, become institution here at UCI, and uh, is certainly a powerful way to educate students, you know, taking them to these war zones, conflict zones, and speaking with people of all different viewpoints uh, in these conflict zones mixes them up so much. I mean, on the first trip, I realized after the third or fourth day when students were beginning to say, I'm so confused. Okay. I'm so confused. Because the first few days, you know, the ones on one side would say, I got all my ammunition from my point of view. And then the next day they they say, another group says, oh, I got all my ammunition, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm going to be a better. And then by the third or the fourth day, because they keep hearing people on 
very convincingly showed their point of view, then they just got rattled and confused. And I was thrilled because right. that was the whole point. Of course, we get them through that confusion so that they right. be- become uh, more knowledgeable. But uh, the last few years, what I found to be um, effective for me and uh, the people I'm serving is to try to create those kinds of encounters on our campus so that we can impact even more students by bringing guests from different sides of conflicts. Again, to show the students in person, you know, these all these people have different points of view. And last year uh, in spring quarter, we had um, some uh, women who organized a march from Nor- South Korea to North Korea. Oh, that's right. That's on your website. Yeah. yeah. And they did an astounding peace building, uh, bridge building program, uh, bringing in Nobel Peace Prize winners and others. And you brought, I brought them into the classroom in public events and students were just amazed. And, um, I know that. So that's say the, benef- much. the benefit is the benefit. A, they experienced it and B, they're bringing it back to another audience. So it's re- it's really spread. Yes. And then also people from the caucuses that I've been working with, university students, were here for a week and my students gave great feedback. Like they never realized how complicated all these things are. So I think there's a, there's a, a role for taking students out of campus and going elsewhere to learn <clears throat> rather than from textbooks. And there's certainly a role to um, bring other people here to those of us who can't always be on the road and travel. So I'm not sure if you mentioned this earlier, but how long do these students that you were talking about in that first excursion, how long do they get to spend away? Those, uh, it's two to three weeks, depending on whether it's the Arab, uh, sorry, Palestinian, Israeli, whether they go to the Middle East, or whether they go to Armenia and Turkey. The Armenia-Turkey trips have been around uh, 10 to 14 days. The uh, Middle East trips are about three weeks. Okay. So for those of you who've just tuned in, here on Ask a Leader, my guest is UCI lecturer and anthropologist Paula Garb. And we're mapping out local opportunities to become informed about international intractable issues. And I guess if you had infinite funding, how long would a better uh, trip last for these students to be immersed? If you had all, all the money that you wanted. Well, I would take more students on more trips. I wouldn't make them larger trips. I think three weeks by by the end really? of the second week, most it? of the students are sick, 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 like respiratory really? illnesses. They don't sleep enough. Um, and it's physically really that, you know, the, the intensity of the visits to as many speakers as we can get um, and the the just shock of being brought back and forth between different perspectives of the conflict, wears the students out so that pretty much everybody is sick on the plane coming home. So I wouldn't do it for more than three weeks. Or if it was less intense, but it was still an immersive experience so that they could, you don't see that being a possibility. I mean, if you had all the money you wanted. If I had all the money I wanted, I would just give it more and more students students, the opportunities. And uh, the same thing, bringing more and more people here. Um, because I, I think we need quantity. I think we've yes. understood how to get the quality of okay. these visits. 
we need more funding to make more of this happen. Actually, I can, now you're making me think of a very successful model that Amy Beale's foundation, Linda Beale, her mother, has taken up the charge. And I think that's what they've done is they've, they've managed to do some paraprofessional training so they can get fan out as many tra- newly trained people to have an impact in any kind of a social s- service delivery sector. So I guess uh, that's a, a, an, another endorsement of what you're saying is a, the, the way to make an impact. Oh. And one other thing I really want to stress, yes. if I had more funding and am seeking more funding. So everybody would, listen up. You can write I your check. Would, yes, I really am a strong opponent of um, advocacy, mainstreaming, peace education in mm. K through 12 and through the university system. If we believe that a child must learn to read, write, and do math in order to become a f- uh, an effective adult, we have to add to that peaceful conflict resolution, it peaceful problem solving. Right, incorporate the content into those exactly. methods. And uh, now in the age of the internet, part of that vision, because I'm not the first one to come up with this vision, but I think what's distinct about the way I want to go about it for the rest of my life okay. is finding ways to connect these learners in peace education, whether it's experiential learning like OTI or whether it's in the classroom without walls, but to connect these young people who are learning these new skills like many in our ca- campus are, to connect them regularly with students in other countries so that we'll have future leaders who will have gone through this kind of training and will not have the boundaries between their peers uh, in, a f- in a world that's uh, future. And I, I, I know it sounds to some like a pipe dream. No, um, no, I'm not. I don't accept that. Um, but for those who might be listening and, and still are saying, oh, come on, uh, you know, conflict is always going to be with us. Violence is always going to be with us. I, I'm assuming that's true, but I also think that we can minimize it so that it becomes just really um, our default to find peaceful solutions to all problems. In our lifetime, we have seen so much social change that if 100 years ago, 100 years ago, women were still fi- fighting for the right to vote, and today we're still fighting for many uh, you know, of the nuances of equality. But look how much, if you would ask, tell a person 200 years ago, women are someday going to vote, women are going to be presidents and prime ministers, you would have been laughed out of the room. And there are so many social issues that have changed in the last 10 years, gay rights, marriage. Why can't we also make a vision of peaceful problem solving as the default for the way the human race going forward takes on the rest of society's future. I guess we need a mutual fund a, a, um, that is large as the ones that are controlling the Carlisle groups and all that. Make it more profitable for peace. You a know? small percentage of the defense industry's budget right. yeah. would help. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, you had a chance to talk a little bit about all the organizations. I don't think you finished talking about the Olive Tree Initiative. And when we bring that up, I'd like to have you address how, to what extent does the Olive Tree Initiative deal with this, how I perceive to be a proxy conflict? 
between the Arab Israelis happening right here on the UCI campus? I don't have a lot of inside current information, but I know that with each trip uh, that I was involved in for the five years, there were noticeable differences in the way the student groups um, advocated for their perspective, toning down or making more sophisticated their messages. And I think that, um, you know, when we compare what it was like on our campus when we first started the Olive Tree Initiative and what it is today, the progress is obvious. Um, so um, I, I also think that Students for Global Peace Building is um, able to make a, um, a dent into these issues. Uh, the, this year, the last week of January, put it on your calendar. Um, we will hold the fifth annual Peace and Justice Week. Uh, and that will be an opportunity for us to bring outstanding speakers from the national and international arena talking about nonviolence and uh, social justice issues that uh, have been swept under the rug for a long time in our country. So this is coming up in January? Last week That's of January, okay. Students for Global Peace Building and uh, other, um, we're bringing together uh, other student groups to co-sponsor. We've always had the co-sponsorship of International Studies, the Center for Citizen Peacebuilding, and um, the Division of Undergraduate Education, or rather the Civic and Community Engagement Minor. Um, so anybody who's interested in joining this uh, group that's organizing, uh, we're at the ground floor right now, ready to invite guest speakers, but definitely be tuned in to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the last week of January. That's when we'll have uh, very big events with uh, high-profile speakers. Well, we'll do, I'll make sure all these websites are in the summary for this podcast as well as, we'll stay tuned. I want you back and bring Christina on with you if you're if you're in town. I mean, you'll be in town sure, a couple weeks before that, and so we can cover that then. Yeah, Let's I'll be here on and off, and showcase. Christina will be here all the time. Okay, so that'll be really important to do. Well, we need to wrap the show. I want to thank you, Dr. Paula Garb, for coming in. She's UCI lecturer in foreign affairs, anthropologist in uh, human affairs, put it that way. And thanks for coming in studio to be with us today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So next week, we're going to have on first James Randerson. He's going to uh, give the opportunity to scare listeners into stepping up their game in a climate change. And during the second half, a trio of researchers, Ashley Joe Thomas, Barbara Sarneka, and Kyle Stanford, concerned about the epidemic of parental overreach, are going to make their case for what is lovingly referred to as free-range parenting. Thanking Paula Garb once again. That was really a treat. So long. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Talk to you next week. <laughs>